The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. It says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're told that the one who delights in your word is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and that has leaves that do not wither. So we want to be that tree. So please open up your word to us this morning so that we can be rooted in your word, nourished by your word, and sustained by your word. Holy Spirit, use the things taught in this passage to change us from within. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, One of the ways in which God has blessed our church is that we now um, have a building uh, of our very own. Uh, For those of you who are newer around here, you may or may not realize that Prior to about nine months ago, we were meeting in a hotel, and before that, in a school, and before that, in another church's building, and before that, in my living room. Uh, But now, God has graciously provided us with this building, and we certainly want to use it in the wisest possible way and make the greatest possible impact on people's lives. As you'll notice in the front of your bulletin, just about every Sunday, uh, our church's mission is to glorify God by helping people know Christ personally, grow to spiritual maturity, and become disciple makers themselves. So that's why we as a church exist, and also what we desire to accomplish through our stewardship of this building. 
And yet perhaps uh, you've noticed that uh, there are a few things around here uh, that need to be done, uh, particularly downstairs and particularly that mud pit on days like today that we can call a parking lot, perhaps. Um, And so we really want to do some things to get this building into a more uh, usable condition and uh, just transform it from a place that is habitable to a place that is truly comfortable and uh, welcoming uh, for people. And as you might expect, uh, these renovations do uh, cost a lot of money. So beginning this Sunday and continuing on for three more weeks, uh, we will be doing what we're calling a season of giving for these church renovations and asking you to prayerfully consider what the Lord would have you contribute to that. And I'd really like to emphasize the simplicity of this season of giving. Um, contrary to what uh, some of you may have experienced in other churches or, or heard about, um, we're, we're doing something just very simple. There's no elaborate fundraising machinery here. You know, we haven't engaged any outside consultant, and we're not doing a, you know, big elaborate pledge drive. I haven't really crafted any uh, cleverly written sales pitches to, to convince you guys to give um, these, uh, the, the cars that you find in the pews there are about as elaborate as we plan to get with this, all right? Uh, instead, our approach is um, to, to things like this uh, is what it's always been, and that is to simply make known the need in a non-manipulative way and then trust that God is going to put it in people's hearts to contribute to that need. Um, and uh, I've really been inspired in that mentality by a man named George Mueller, in case you're not familiar with him, George Mueller lived in England during the 19th century and believed God was calling him to establish an orphanage to care for the, the numerous orphans living in quite miserable conditions in England at the time. And yet there was one problem, that he barely had any money that he could use to get this orphanage up and running. But Mueller was a man of prayer. In fact, he believed so much in the power of prayer that he actually decided not to make known any of the needs of his ministry except to God in prayer. He wasn't going to tell anyone what he needed to establish or sustain the orphanage and was just going to trust that God would hear his prayers and bring in what was needed. And guess what? Well, that's exactly what God did. Not only did God provide the land and all of the resources that they needed to establish the orphanage initially, but he provided enough for George Mueller to care for over 10,000 orphans over the course of his lifetime. Uh, At one point, uh, his orphanage housed 2,000 orphans at a single time. And in all, God provided over half a billion dollars in today's dollars for Mueller's orphanage ministry. And all of this, again, was done simply through prayer, right? They never did any official fundraising. Now, eventually, as I understand it, they did uh, just publish their needs in a very simple pamphlet once a year. But beyond that, they simply prayed to God and then entrusted God to meet 
their needs. In fact, Mueller recorded over 50,000 specific answers to prayer in his prayer journal, 30,000 of which were reported as being answered the same day or sometimes even the same hour as he prayed them. Uh, For example, he records that one day the orphanage director informed him that uh, the orphanage children were dressed and ready to school uh, for school, but that there wasn't any food for them to eat. The orphanage didn't have any food left or apparently any money to buy food, so Mueller told her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at tables. And then once they were seated, Mueller thanked God for the food and uh, then waited with the expectation that God would provide. So after a few minutes, a baker knocked at the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I couldn't sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches for you, and I'll bring it in. Now soon after that, there was another knock on the door. This time it was the milkman. And he told him that his cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage and that the milk would go bad by the time the wheel on the cart was fixed. And so he asked Mueller if he wanted some free milk. Uh, Mueller apparently couldn't help but smile as he brought in 10 large cans of milk, which were just enough to feed the 300 thirsty children. And that's what it was like at Mueller's orphanage, day after day, after day, you can actually go to England today and see a museum that is dedicated to Mueller's ministry and to God's extraordinary provision. So what a testament to the faithfulness of God and the power of prayer. Now, obviously, our church is a bit more active in making our needs known than Mueller was, yet it's in that, still in that same spirit of prayerfully trusting in God to provide for our needs that we've been operating and that we plan to continue operating. And so that's why we're approaching this season of giving the way we are and just keeping it very simple. Yet at the same time, I would like to take this opportunity during the season of giving to remind us of a few biblical principles, and especially for those who are younger in the faith, to essentially disciple you, if I may, in this area of giving. And after all, that's my responsibility as your pastor. Like, you realize I'm going to have to uh, stand before God one day and, and be held accountable by God for how faithfully I have taught and discipled in this area. And so before we begin our next sermon series in a, a couple of weeks, going through the book of Genesis. That's, the, that's where we're going. Uh, but I would like to take this Sunday and next Sunday to look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, respectively. You may remember that several months ago, um, I very briefly mentioned 10 principles related to the subject of giving in uh, one of my sermons. And at the time, that's not really what the the whole sermon was about, so we didn't really have time to elaborate on those 10 principles. I pretty much just read through them very briefly. But now, we've got a little bit of time. And so I would like to look at the first six of those principles today, and then the remaining four principles 
next week. And uh, let me be clear here at the outset that this sermon is intended primarily for Christians. So if you are not a Christian, please understand that we are not asking you to contribute any money to our church. Um, And I really want to emphasize that God isn't after your money. He's after your heart, okay? Um, So our encouragement for you is to embrace Jesus and to recognize the desperate need we all have to be rescued from our sins and uh, put your trust in, in Jesus to do that, even this very day. Yet for the rest of us, I'm hoping that this uh, brief excursion through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 will be helpful for us as we seek to exalt Jesus and surrender to his lordship in every aspect of our lives. And in fact, I believe you'll discover, if you haven't already, the joy to be found in generous giving. You know, we live in a society that doesn't really have that mentality. Uh, Our society is one where people are often much more interested in what they can get than in what they can give. And yet the Bible tells us that there's actually more joy to be found in giving than there is in getting. As Jesus himself said, uh, recorded in Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Those are the only words of Jesus recorded outside the four Gospels. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's counterintuitive, of course, but it's true. The greatest joy is found not in what we get, but in what we give. And that's also the unifying theme of our main passage, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. Or as we often call it, the main idea. God invites us to experience the joy of generous giving. God invites us to experience the joy of generous giving. So we're simply going to walk through this passage and, as I mentioned, pull out six principles for generous giving. Now, Paul's writing this to the church of Corinth in order to encourage them to contribute generously to an offering he's collecting for the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. And he emphasizes these six principles. First, giving is the fruit of God's grace in a person's heart. Giving is the fruit of God's grace in a person's heart. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8.1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And then he goes on to describe their generous giving. So Paul refers to giving as something that originates with the grace of God. It's not natural. Our natural tendency is to be stingy and to hoard money and other resources for ourselves. And it's kind of like when when someone breaks open a pinata at a a child's birthday party and all the candy comes out and, and everyone collectively flocks to the candy and grabs as much as they can, right? At that point, as the saying goes, it's every man for himself, And, of course, that's part of the fun with a pinata. But, unfortunately, that's not entirely different than the way in which we're inclined to naturally approach money and material possessions in general. But when God's grace gets a hold of our hearts, 
it changes us. Instead of greedily holding on to what we have with an iron grip, we begin to hold it all with open hands. Then a second principle we see is that giving should be an overflow of our joy. Giving should be an overflow of our joy. Moving on to verse 2, we see how exactly God's grace manifested itself in the Christians of Macedonia. Paul writes with regard to these churches, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So take note of the situation that these Macedonian Christians were in. They didn't just run into some unexpected windfall of cash and decide to give some of it away. No, quite the opposite. In fact, they were in the midst of a severe test of affliction. That word, translated affliction, literally refers to pressure that's being exerted on something. For example, it was used of the pressure exerted in crushing grapes in order to make wine. That's what the Macedonian Christians were going through. And yet, we read that their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So notice the formula there. You you take some extreme poverty and you add to it an abundance of joy, and what do you get? A wealth of generosity. And I love how it says that as these things were mixed together, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. You know, I, I get the picture in my mind of uh, maybe dropping a few Mentos into a, a bottle of Diet Coke and then seeing the concoction overflow very rapidly, of course, out of the bottle. The bottle can't contain what's inside of it any longer. So it all just overflows. And that's the dynamic that should be at work in generous giving as well. Jesus stirs up joy in a person's heart. In the words of this verse, an abundance of joy, or more joy than they can hold inside of them. And that joy has nothing else it can do. It overflows in the form of generous giving. So this is the exact opposite of giving begrudgingly or out of some sense of guilt or obligation. Now, God wants our giving to be an overflow of our joy, and specifically the joy that we have in Jesus. Moving forward, uh, the third principle is that there's a time for sacrificial giving. There's a time for sacrificial giving. Uh, Still speaking of the Macedonian Christians, Paul writes in verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Notice the phrase, beyond their means. We're told that the Macedonians didn't just give according to their means and stop there, but actually went beyond that and gave beyond their means. 
It's like they did some calculations and figured out how much they could comfortably give without impacting their lives too much. And then they gave more than that. Their giving was sacrificial. They actually had to do without certain things in order to give the way they did. And there's a time for that. There are times when God burdens your heart for a certain situation or a certain need and leads you to give not just generously, but sacrificially. Uh, Today, um, that might look like sacrificing the purchase of a new vehicle or a desired vacation or something even more significant than that so that we can engage in a higher level of giving. And, of course, we count it a joy to do that since we're sacrificing something of lesser value for something of greater value. And fourth, we see in this passage that giving should be first and foremost an act of worship toward God. Giving should be first and foremost an act of worship toward God. In verses 4 and 5, Paul describes how the Macedonians were, quote, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then, by the will of God, to us. In other words, the Macedonians weren't just trying to make Paul happy by their giving, but were giving as a heartfelt act of worship toward God. That's what it means when it says that they gave themselves first to the Lord. Their first priority. And I'd say the one that encompassed all others was to glorify God in their giving and give as worship toward Him. Um, This is a lot different, of course, than what often uh, motivates people to give. And you can see it with corporations, especially. Like, isn't it interesting how a corporation will donate a certain amount of money to a charity and then spend twice that amount of money making sure everyone's aware of the good deed that they've done, right? Now, thankfully, individual people aren't usually that aggressive in bragging about their good deeds, but there's still a tendency for us to give in order to be seen. We might not shamelessly flaunt our giving, but we still often find creative ways to let people know about our giving and other good deeds. And it really comes back to the heart here. What's the motive behind your giving? What are you trying to show? Who are you trying to impress? Are you giving because of what others might think of you? Um, You know, I was out getting some food uh, not too long ago. I think it was at at Panera, I'm pretty sure. And uh, I remember that uh, the the lady behind the register asked me rather loudly in front of numerous people if I would like to round up my total to support kids with childhood cancer. Um, And that put me uh, in sort of an interesting situation, didn't it? Because on the one hand, I mean, what kind of a terrible person would not give an extra 30 cents or whatever to support kids with cancer? And uh, even worse than that, 
everyone around me would know that I'm that terrible person who didn't round up my total. And so, of course, even though I had no idea about what the, what the heck this charity was, I didn't look into them at all, of course, what did I do? I rounded up. And I have to confess to you that I was probably, in that moment, not giving first and foremost as an act of worship toward God. I was probably a little more concerned about not being or appearing to be a terrible person. So I guess the moral of that story is uh, don't do what I did in that situation, but instead do what these Macedonian Christians were doing here and giving themselves first to the Lord. And notice also in that phrase what it actually says that they gave. According to Paul, these Macedonian Christians gave not just their money, but what? Themselves, right? They gave their very selves in a sense. And that's really what God ultimately desires. As I mentioned earlier, God isn't after your money. He's after your heart. I mean, let's be honest. If God really wanted your money, I'm pretty sure he could just take it. He is God, after all. And, And what does he need your money for anyway? Let's not forget that he's the one who spoke this world, this universe, into existence. So clearly, he doesn't need money to do what he wants to do. So God's not interested in your money, but rather in your heart. It's um, kind of like when you choose to marry someone. Like Hopefully, you don't choose a spouse based on how much money they have. I mean, that kind of thing is frowned upon even by secular society. Hopefully, you choose to marry someone because you love them, and you love knowing them, and you love being with them. So understand, God's not interested in your money, but in your heart. However, giving is nevertheless a natural and inevitable expression of a heart that's devoted to God. After that, and closely related, the fifth principle for generosity uh, we see here is that the genuineness of our love is seen in our willingness to give. The genuineness of our love is seen in our willingness to give. After Paul urges the Corinthians to imitate the Macedonians in their generous giving, he states in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Biblical love is about more than sentimental feelings. It's about our willingness to serve and help the people around us, especially brothers and sisters in the faith. In 1 John 3, 17 and 18, John asks, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, words and talk are easy. Anyone can post something on social media in support of a good cause. But God tells us to go beyond giving merely lip service to something and instead actually love in deed and in truth. And by the way, that's one reason why I love going out for our 
Love Your Neighbor Days, as, as uh, Caitlin shared with us already. And it's because we have an opportunity there, not just to, to like post something in support of works of charity, but we have a, an opportunity to actually interact with people and hear about their hurts and, and help them in, in practical ways and, and pray with them and give them things. So that is what genuine love looks like. And hopefully going out to those homeless camps uh, helps us all and, and changes our general disposition in our day-to-day lives, making us more sensitive to the needs and opportunities to serve other people that are all around us. And as we see back in verse 8 of our main passage, our willingness to do that and to serve and give in practical ways is a key indicator of the genuineness of our love. The clear implication of this verse is that if we're not willing to give to those in need, then any claim that, that we make of loving them is a relatively empty claim, or at least not very meaningful. The genuineness of our love is seen in our willingness to give. You see, giving points back to the heart. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but there's actually this this invisible cord running from your heart all the way down here to your wallet. All right? That's what the experts say. The true condition of your heart is seen in your willingness to give. In fact, I think we could even say that the way we handle the money that God has entrusted to us is one of the most reliable indicators there is about our spiritual condition. Again, the way we handle what God has entrusted to us is one of the most reliable indicators there is of our spiritual condition. That is, of our love for the Lord, our devotion to the Lord, our delight in the Lord, our trust in the Lord. Our handling of money is connected to all of that. Then a sixth and final principle from this passage is that Jesus is the ultimate example of generous giving. Jesus is the ultimate example of generous giving. Paul writes in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus left his riches to become poor in the sense that he left the glories of heaven in order to come as a lowly human to this sin-cursed earth for the purpose of saving us. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 states that though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, we stood guilty and condemned before God because of our sin. And even worse, we had no means by which to rescue ourselves. So, Jesus came to our rescue. And not only did he humble himself by leaving heaven and entering this world as a lowly human, he actually went even beyond that. 
as we read in the next verse, Philippians 2, 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. You see, our sins, dear friends, cried out for God's judgment. But Jesus took that judgment on himself as he died on that cross. He made atonement for our sins so that God's justice could be satisfied and so that we could be saved. Back in verse 9 of our main passage, that's what it means for us to become rich. Again, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Even the Christian who has the least amount of earthly possessions is still rich beyond all comparison in the way that most matters. Through the voluntary poverty of Jesus, we, as his people, become rich in the sense of possessing all the spiritual blessings he purchased on the cross. Yet, of course, none of this is automatic. The Bible clearly teaches that in order for us to benefit from what Jesus has done on the cross, that we have to put our trust in him as our all-sufficient Savior, looking not to ourselves, but to Jesus alone as our only hope of being right with God and having eternal life. And for those of us who have done that, we see here in these verses that Jesus is not only our all-sufficient Savior, but also the ultimate example of generosity. Notice the word for at the beginning of the verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word for connects this verse with the preceding verses, where Paul encourages the Corinthian Christians to give generously. So his encouragement to give generously is now being bolstered and amplified by the motivation we find in this verse. It's like Paul's saying, you know, guys, I've encouraged you to give generously. Now here's why. Here's what should motivate you to give more than anything else. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate example of generosity as the one who gave all he had to give. Even his very life for the sake of his people. So giving, or at least the kind of giving that pleases God, begins and ends with the gospel. As we mentioned earlier, it begins with the gospel as God's grace transforms our hearts, and it also ends with the gospel as we continually look to Jesus as the ultimate example of generous giving and exhibit our gratitude toward him. 